Are you a dreamer? Not in the poetic sense. Like literally, do you dream a lot at night? Do you remember your dreams? Are your dreams an escape? What if you could write your dreams? Would they be great adventures? And would you be the hero? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has spent probably half my life asleep, not to brag, and so has hundreds of pages of dream journals. Turns out, dream journaling is not just an intense navel-gazing exercise, but may actually have mental health applications, unlocking possibilities within our own minds. And as dream journalers from across time would come to find out, it's possible to harness your dreams and control them. This week, we'll look into the fascinating practice and history of lucid dreaming. Apparently, some people don't dream much, which is crazy to me because I have always had a really intense and vibrant dream life. I can remember my first nightmare from when I was about six or seven years old. It was of a werewolf chasing me down the stairs. When I was a teenager, I once dreamt I was giving a hundred-foot-tall red Satan a blowjob. Let's not linger on that one too long. And I had a recurring dream starting when I was about seven years old every year around Christmas of being on a merry-go-round that would take me to an unknown and somewhat ominous place, which is a metaphor for capitalism if I ever heard one. One year, as I stepped onto the merry-go-round, I somehow knew what was about to happen. So I said to myself in the dream, this time, when I get off, it's gonna be a super fun, awesome time. And it was. There was cotton candy and my best friend's dad, Burl, saying, Well, all right! I have no idea why him saying that was my safe place, but here we are. Hi, Burl. Anyway, it turns out what I was doing without knowing it was called lucid dreaming. Becoming aware, or at least partly aware, that you're in a dream and, as a result, possibly, but not necessarily, changing some aspect of it. At some point in my 20s, I don't know how or why it happened, but I started lucid dreaming regularly. If something happened in a dream that I didn't like, I could essentially pause it, rewind it, and do it again with a different outcome. Or I could tell myself, this is a dream. You can fly away from this part if you want, and off I would go. Most of the time when I do fly in my dreams, it's more like really long gliding leaps, like what it must be like to walk on the moon, which according to my extremely unofficial research of just talking to friends, is pretty common. Nowadays, my ability to control my dreams comes in fits and spurts. I don't know what affects it. Incidentally, there's a guy in South Africa who runs lucid dreaming retreats where you literally get to fucking nap all day. Sign me up. Apparently, I'm not alone in my ability to recognize when I'm in a dream state. In a 2016 study conducted by psychologist and psi researcher, which basically means he researches really cool sort of metaphysical science, at the University of Northampton's Exceptional Experiences and Consciousness Studies group, David Saunders, Approximately 55% of people have experienced at least one lucid dream in their lifetime, with 23% reporting lucid dreaming monthly. 
Saunders studied metadata from 34 different lucid dream studies over 50 years, with a sample pool of nearly a quarter million people. Which is to say, it was a pretty thorough look at a lot of the research that had been done on lucid dreaming. It wasn't just some guy asking a handful of people if they lucid dream. You dig? Saunders found that only about a third of lucid dreamers can actually control their dreams. The rest, I guess, are just aware they're dreaming but remain passive, which sounds kind of awful. Imagine suddenly being aware you're in a dream but not really being able to do anything about it. Unless it's one of my annual sex dreams about Daniel Craig, in which case I am more than happy to be a passive pawn. Trust me. Lucid dreaming entered the modern zeitgeist in 2010 with Christopher Nolan's hit film Inception. And please, if you value my sanity, don't make me explain it. I'll leave it to the guys at South Park to sum it up. And it will be like a taco inside a taco within a Taco Bell that's inside a KFC within a mall that's inside your drive! I don't know, dude. It's Christopher Nolan. He actively doesn't want you to understand his work. He also actively has never cast me, so I don't have to pretend to care. Anyway. The concept of lucid dreaming is much older than Inception, though. My boy Aristotle wrote about lucid dreaming way back in 350 BCE in his book On Dreams. But before Aristotle, because believe it or not, there were thousands of years of humanity before the Greeks, Tibetan Buddhists knew about and were practicing something similar to what we now call lucid dreaming. The Tibetan Buddhists are the real OG experts on this practice. Buddhism teaches the practice of waking up from the illusions we veiled our lives in, so it makes sense that they also have a method of doing this in the dream world as well. But it would be another couple millennia in 1913 that a Dutch dude named Dr. Frederick Van Eden coined the term lucid dreaming, and that's the term that stuck. In 1913, Dr. Van Eden published a piece on lucid dreaming called A Study of Dreams in the medical journal Proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research, which I'm guessing was basically the Us Weekly of the 1910s. Van Eden wrote, and before we go any further, I'm not going to try to do a Dutch accent because I will sound like the Swedish chef from the Muppets, so let's just go with something a little more universal. Anyway, Van Eden wrote, Many other authors will not accept my definition because they deny the possibility of complete recollection and free volition in a dream. They would say that what I call a dream is no dream, but a sort of trance or hallucination or ecstasy. I can only say that I made my observations during normal, deep, and healthy sleep, and that in 352 cases, I had full recollection of my day life and could act voluntarily, though I was so fast asleep that no bodily sensations penetrated into my perception. If anybody refuses to call that state of mind a dream, he may suggest some other name. For my part, it was just this form of dream, which I call lucid dreams, which aroused my keenest interest and which I noted down most carefully. In other words, haters gonna hate, but whatevs, if you have a better name for it, come at me, bro. But there was another studier of dreams working at the same time as Dr. Van Eden, who largely went ignored, 
because she was the unfortunate bearer of a lady brain at a time when lady brains were less than respected for their discoveries, dreamlike and otherwise, which is to say, all of modern history. If Ms. Mary Arnold Forster had been alive in 2010, she would have said to Christopher Nolan, old news, buddy. Right around the time that Dr. Van Eden was considering and writing about lucid dreaming, an English woman named Mary Arnold Forster was also doing her own informal research. This was in late 19th century England, so it's important to remember that women weren't, like, encouraged to study science or to study at all, really. Women were finally allowed to go to university only eight years after Arnold Forster was born. So Arnold Forster didn't have a degree and was technically an amateur. Then again, so was Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Rachel Ray, Mark Zuckerberg, noted automobile innovator and literal Hitler inspirer Henry Ford and Kim Kardashian. Oh my God, kids, stay in school. Where was I? Oh, right. Science of the mind was a popular topic those days, mostly due to our buddy Sigmund Freud of everything is either a penis or a vagina fame, who had published his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, in which basically he argued that every image in a dream is either a penis or a vagina, and they speak to underlying psychological problems. Not really, but kinda. Freud stuck to this theory his whole career, all while daily smoking a phallus in the form of a cigar until it and the mountains of cocaine he snorted literally ate away his jaw and killed him. How's that for symbolism? But Mary Arnold Forster wasn't having Freud's everything in a dream as a symbol mumbo-jumbo. She wrote her own thesis on the matter in the form of a book called Studies in Dreams, Published in 1921, it's now in the public domain for you to easily download and check out yourself as an accessible, less jargon-filled text on this topic. It's a first-person account of her own dream life, and as an avid dream journaler, she had a lot of data to work with. Of her misgivings on Freud, she wrote, My experience convinces me that it is not true that all our dreams are symbolic, Happily, there is no need for us to believe that the nature of the dreams, which for so many of us make up so great an element of pleasure in life, has any close relationship with the morbid obsessions of disease. It happens constantly that some idea that fills our thoughts on one day will determine the course of our dreams, either on the following night or after an interval a few nights later. But Daisy, I hear you cry. Interpreting dreams is super cool and all, but it's not very sciencey. And first of all, yes it is. The science of the mind is still a science, even though it's not as measurable as, say, getting an earthworm drunk on vodka and then measuring its brain waves, which is an actual recent scientific study. But also, if you're not impressed by the theoretical discussion of what dreams might mean, Mary Arnold Forster's work on dreams turned out to match a lot of what was later learned about how and when humans store memories. In a 2015 piece about lucid dreaming on BBC.com, author David Robeson noted that what Arnold Forster found in her unofficial research matches up with what researchers later discovered about memory consolidation. It's super sciencey, so in the words of Inigo Montoya, No, there is too much. Let me sum up. 
Basically, what modern day researchers have found is that memories show up in our dreams around one or two days after the event and then again about a week later, which is most likely when the brain is sorting through them to throw them away or put them in long-term memory. Arnold Forster found her own dream lag to match up with what scientists later confirmed with more official research. And that might not sound super impressive until you remember that she was doing this all on her own, with no funding or labs or equipment. Coming to conclusions it would take scientists with all those fancy resources decades to come to. Arnold Forster taught herself how to become the hero of her dreams, and instead of running away from danger in a nightmare, she learned to embrace it and become the star in her own nocturnal thrillers. During the course of a long dream, I had succeeded in tracing the existence of a complicated and dangerous plot against our country. The conspirators had turned upon me on discovering how much I knew. I was so closely followed and my personal danger became so great that the formula for breaking off a dream flashed into my mind and automatically gave me back confidence. I remembered that I could make myself safe but with the feeling of safety, I also realized that if I were to wake, my valuable knowledge of the dangerous conspiracy would be lost. For I realized that this was dream knowledge. It was a dreadful dilemma. Safety called me one way, but the conviction that my duty was to frustrate the traitors was very strong. I feared that I would give way, and I knelt and prayed that I might have courage not to seek safety by awakening, but to go on until I had done what was needed. I therefore did not wake. The dream continued. The arch-conspirator, a white-faced man in a bowler hat, had tracked me down to the building where I was concealed, in which by this time was surrounded, but all fear had departed. The comfortable feeling of great heroism, only fully enjoyed by those who feel themselves to be safe, was mine. It became a delightful dream of adventure, since the element of fear had gone from it. Arnold Forster found that learning to harness one's dreams isn't just a fun pastime, but can help cure chronic nightmares. She wrote, I believe, in short, that we can at will stop the recurrence of bad dreams, or of dreams that we dislike or dread, and that we can, to a considerable extent, alter the very nature of our dreams, by using in our sleep the same faculty of rational selection and rejection that we use with regards to our thoughts and to our wandering fancies by day. Our first practical need when we begin to acquire any control over our dreams is to get rid of bad dreams of all sorts, for whether they take the form of dreams of grief, dreams of evil or dreams of fear, bad dreams are the occasion of real misery to very many people Children and grown-up persons often confess that if they had their choice, they would rather never dream at all than face the chance of a bad dream or the recurrence of some particular nightmare, which they have learned to dread. I want to stress again here that Arnold Forster was largely ignored in her era because of the aforementioned patriarchy, but she was really ahead of her time. It's not like people back then understood how important sleeping and dreaming actually is for our general mental health. But Arnold Forster was like, hey, we spend a lot of our time asleep. Maybe we should, I don't know, not hate it? And nowadays, we know she was right. 
sleeping and dreaming are vital to our overall health and well-being. So the stuff Arnold Forster was writing about was really important. This question of our power of control over our dreams becomes a practical one and of serious importance when we realize how closely it touches the health and happiness of our children for the evil dreams are unhappily shared in more or less degree by many children and are too often the cause of anguish to them. It would be a great gain if those who suffer thus could be helped to understand the nature of their troubles and to become, to some extent, the masters of their dreams. Today, lucid dreaming is a recognized treatment for chronic nightmares and night terrors, and it only took researchers a hundred years to figure that out. Not for nothing, but just think of where we'd be if women had been allowed to go to college before the mid-1800s. Anyway. Arnold Forster also theorized that what's happening in the brain when we free associate or daydream is the same thing we're doing when we're asleep and dreaming. Her contemporaries weren't buying it, but it turns out she was right. The main difference between night and daydreaming is just that our minds are less inhibited when we're asleep. Free associating or daydreaming is what fuels creativity. Without it, the world would be a completely different place. Letting your mind wander is what gets us works of art, feats of incredible engineering and new innovations. If we can't dream it, how will we make it? And while Arnold Forster's male contemporaries were going, tut tut, little lady, why don't you go do some needlepoint and leave the science to the men? She was right. And if we can harness our free associations while we're asleep, imagine the implications for how we can harness our waking dreams. Modern day dream research, what with its funding and machines that go bing, has finally surpassed what Arnold Forster was able to do on her own. In an international 2021 study, researchers found that they could actually communicate back and forth with people in a lucid dream state. Lead author Karen Conkley, a cognitive neuroscientist from Northwestern, couldn't believe the results when she gave a lucid dreamer a simple math problem, and he fucking answered it correctly. That's some shit right there. I probably wouldn't have been able to answer the math problem awake. Here's my favorite part of this study. Because it was conducted internationally, different countries brought their own cultural perspectives. So while the Dutch and Americans were asking things like, what is seven plus two? The Germans were teaching their lucid dreamers how to decipher Morse code. Side note, you lost the war literally decades ago. Move on. And the French, you ready? French researchers, while their test subjects were lucid dreaming, we're leaning in and saying shit like, do you like camembert? Because of course they were. Apparently, the French test subject in their lucid dream state had turned the researcher asking them if they liked cheese into God, but for some reason was having to fight off goblins as he tried to answer. This is how I imagine it went. Tell me. Do you like camembert? God, please, how can you ask me this now? Don't you see the goblins? Yes, yes, of course, I like camembert. I love camembert. I am not a monster. Sacré bleu, I am so scared. God bless the French. 
This research has all kinds of important implications about understanding how the brain works and why the French are so obsessed with cheese. No judgment, though, because mem, that's same in French. It's actually super exciting, and it leads me to three conclusions. One, all the time I've wasted with napping has actually been super important scientific research. Two, I need to go on a cheese tour of France. And three, I'm 100% sure we are going to end up using this research for awful things like forcing people to keep working while they're asleep or doing literal inception shit with prisoners of war while they sleep to extract secrets. Fucking humans, am I right? Turns out, even without sci-fi inception-type dream infections, some researchers think lucid dreaming can be dangerous. In a 2019 piece on lucid dreaming for Mel Science magazine, lucid dreamer Bobby, real name, put it this way. Dreams are not only a way to escape reality, but also make it significantly better. Think about it. If you want to go visit an alien world or even another universe or even just have a feast you could never manage to eat in real life, just have a lucid dream. The possibilities are ridiculously endless. You can act on any of your wildest fantasies, from climbing a tree to punching a god. Punching a god? I mean, go big or wake up, I suppose. But an escape is an escape is an escape, like a Taco Bell within a KFC within a dream. And as with any kind of escape, too much of a good thing can have negative consequences. Some dream researchers worry that too much lucid dreaming can start to blur a person's sense of what is real and what is a dream. Dr. Narit Sofer Dudek from Ben Gurion University of Negev worries that for people who may have dormant schizophrenia, for example, toying with lucid dreaming could have devastating consequences. In an interview she gave to Danny Baran for Haaretz.com, she likens it to someone with a dormant personality disorder experiencing a psychotic break from smoking pot. Her studies, she said, suggest frequent experimentation with lucid dreaming can confuse our whole system. Over at our favorite toxic internet sandbox Reddit, some people have shared their experiences of lucid dreaming affecting their waking life. Redditor Lai Manello shared this experience. I've only had two lucid dreams where I've had complete control. However, after I woke up from both of these dreams, I felt really out of it for hours afterwards. It almost felt as if I was still in a dream or I was looking at myself from the outside or even possibly high on marijuana. It was pretty terrifying, to the point where I thought my brain had rewired or something and I would never be normal again. Anyone know why this happens? Or is it just a coincidence that I felt loopy out of it for hours after both dreams? Thanks, guys. And actually, the responses she got were pretty thoughtful, except inevitably from one dude who tried to gaslight her because, of course. One user said she might be experiencing depersonalization, which, according to that great peer-reviewed journal Wikipedia, quote, can consist of a detachment within the self regarding one's mind or body or being a detached observer of oneself. Subjects feel they have changed and that the world has become vague, dreamlike, less real, lacking in significance, or being outside reality, end quote. 
which is pathologized in Western medicine, of course, whereas as another Reddit user said, quote, it's just you gaining a higher awareness of yourself and your reality. Just go with the flow and don't fight it, end quote. And another wrote, quote, I think it's the fact you're adjusting to reality. It's self-realization on a much higher level. Your brain probably isn't used to being so self-aware that you are standing there right now. Don't think of this as bad. Once you achieve higher self-realization, you'll be able to lucid dream much easier. This is something I strive for, end quote. In other words, the thing that we're supposed to be trying to achieve, according to Buddhism. In the piece for HaArets.com, author Bar An asks, quote, Why take mushrooms or other hallucinogenic drugs if you can create whatever reality you wish on your own? End quote. Um, because taking hallucinogenic drugs is fun, dude. That's why. Also, as of yet, as far as we know, you can't lucid dream with someone else. Whereas you can rent a small villa in Costa Rica with four of your best friends and take a bunch of mushrooms and have a great time. Maybe you can approximate that in your dreams, but chances are you'll miss your friend Tom's meltdown in which he insists on running around naked and yelling, what is time? Not not based on a true story. And also, why not both? Professor Martin Dressler from the Donders Sleep and Memory Lab in the Netherlands says, quote, We evolved in a way that keeps us non-lucid during the night. I'm sure, but we also apparently evolved to sit around watching The Real Housewives and yelling at each other online. And how's that working out for us? I'm just saying maybe not all of our upgrades are upgrades. You know what I mean? Buddhists would argue that the main goal of life is to revert back to our core essentialness in which we naturally experience compassion and empathy for everyone else. And before you at me on that, I'm paraphrasing the same way I paraphrased all of the decades of Freud's work into everything is a penis or a vagina. Again, I'm no expert, full stop. But for Buddhists, all the stuff we have decided is important in modern life has blinded us to what is actually most important, which is, spoiler, literally just being kind. So maybe it's not that we evolved to non-lucid dream. Maybe it's that we've forgotten how to be better connected to our dream world. But according to psychologist Udi Bonstein, the cult of lucid dreaming may have gotten out of control. Bonstein is quoted in Baron's article saying, quote, the wish to uncover all of one's dreams derives from the narcissistic notion that everything must be known and that we can solve everything. Excessive control of dreams is akin to the American approach of happiness pills. The idea that life should be all good and beautiful, that there is no place in one's mind for any crappy stuff. If dreams become overly simple and accessible, it will be a disaster." End quote. And I have to hand it to Bonstein on this one. The trend in our culture to resist being uncomfortable at all costs is dangerous. Also, what if nightmares were actually a healthy way that our subconscious worked out issues? What if there's an actual mental health benefit to having nightmares that we just haven't discovered yet? 
What if training ourselves to never have nightmares does real psychological damage? As with anything, I suppose, moderation is key. And, of course, we humans are not great at moderation. As the wise philosophers from the 90s boy band O-Town put it, I want it all, or nothing at all. Just like no one should be on mushrooms all the time, trust me, I've tried, maybe we shouldn't lucid dream all the time. Maybe it can be a great treatment for chronic night terrors and a fun and enlightening practice to engage in with a guide of some kind, and even something to try once in a while, and also something you shouldn't do every single night. Even our favorite eccentric English lady, the BBC's words, not mine, Mary Arnold Forster, warned against abusing lucid dreaming. The measure of control that I have been able to acquire is limited, amounting to a certain power of making a favorite dream recur more or less at will, and of being able to greatly increase its pleasurable features. Beyond this, I have not gone, and perhaps if our success were greater, if our control were to become more perfect, our pleasure in dreaming would be lessened. If our dreams could be successfully harnessed and brought under even the measure of discipline to which our wandering thoughts have to submit by day, they would cease to have the charm which their unexpectedness gives them, and with the loss of freedom, they would lose one of their greatest attractions. But we need not fear. Nature will take only too good care that our control shall not go too far, and that the spontaneity and freedom of our dreams shall never be too seriously crippled. I think I agree with Arnold Forster that controlling all of our dreams all the time would be a bummer, not to mention dangerous. And I hope she's right that our control won't go too far, but if I know humans, we'll take it too far. I leave you with this. If you've listened to any other episode of this podcast, you probably know by now that I'm not a huge fan of water. Love drinking it, don't love being in it. I have a major fear of drowning. When I was little, I had a recurring nightmare that I was in a swim race, Lord help me, and I had to touch a sheer brick wall before turning around to swim back and get out of the water. The wall would always move farther away as I swam toward it, and the possibility of drowning increased with every frantic crawl of my arms through that godforsaken pool. It's quite possible that that dream made my fear of the water worse, like a snake eating its own tail. What if I had been able to harness the power of lucid dreaming and make the wall stop moving away from me? Would that have empowered me to conquer my fear of the water out here in the material world? I've tried it out since. These days, if I find myself underwater in a dream, I can remind myself that I'm dreaming and actually breathe underwater or change it so instead of swimming, I'm flying. In fact, most of the time, if I'm having a nightmare, I can stop and rewrite the dream as it's happening. If I start to feel like a dream is heading into a dangerous direction, I can sort of slow it down and change the environment or go back to the moment before things went awry and have it go in a totally different direction. To be honest, I don't know how or why it happens. I've never trained myself to do it. 
That said, I am an expert at sleeping, so maybe my dream skills have developed as a natural offshoot. That is, of course, unless I'm experiencing sleep paralysis and I know I'm asleep and having terrifying hallucinations, but literally can't do anything to snap out of it. Awareness without agency isn't control. And that's the real nightmare of it all. But that's a whole nother episode. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, we all know the story of John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated President Lincoln and was captured and killed 10 days later. But what if they got the wrong man? What if John Wilkes Booth got away and lived out in the open, hiding in plain sight for decades? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek, and our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, Lauren Hooper, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 